I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. After a break-in last weekend, St. Catherine's Catholic Church in Balapusta in County Louth must be reconsecrated because the ciborium containing the Blessed Sacrament was stolen, leaving the church desecrated. A new study released on Tuesday by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life in the US found that it wasn't just liberal mainline Protestants like Methodists or Episcopalians who abandoned their faith, but also more conservative, evangelical and born-again Protestants. It was also learned that the Vatican had discontinued talks with the Society of St. Pius X because of irreconcilable differences. The Dublin Theatre Festival, which ends tomorrow, has always celebrated the best in Irish and international drama. Two plays that registered on our radar were Neil Bartlett's adaptation of Oscar Wilde's story The Picture of Dorian Gray, which runs at the Abbey Theatre until November the 17th, and Tom Murphy's Conversations on a Homecoming, part of the Druid Murphy trilogy, which finishes at the Gaiety tomorrow and then heads for Washington, and I'm sure we'll see it back in Ireland again sometime. Our regular reporter Rona Tarrant and new man on the block Max Macken went along to see both plays and they join me now. You're welcome, folks. Max, wild story, the picture of Dorian Gray, tells the story of a man who Mm. basically sells his soul to the devil. How is that portrayed? Um, The play is about a man whose life is obsessed with his lust for eternal vanity and beauty. But ultimately his soul is a collateral in exchange for the eternal youth. Oscar Wilde brings you into Dorian's mind a journey of torment as you see the innocence of Dorian's soul wither as the play goes on, as it gets corrupted by the devil's advocate Sir Henry Wotton. Uh, the bitterness of Sir Henry Wotton is contrasted by the gentle soul of Basil. Basil's lovingly painted portrait of Dorian is a narrative of the play in which you see Dorian's soul wither as the, as the painting's beauty withers itself. You do, but you don't. They don't actually, the, the painting is blank. He allows your imagination, uh, you know, to picture how this sort of narrative goes as Dorian's soul withers. And I think how the devil is, is portrayed with Sir Henry Watton. Sir Henry is, is so chastising, so critical and so cruel and basically brings and erodes the inner beauty of, of, of Dorian, you know, while Dorian just is just so concentrated on the outside and on how he looks and that's the only thing that he he cares about you know now at the end of the play we hear the immortal line what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul mm. um sin and vice weighs on Dorian's on Dorian's soul a lot um you see this throughout the whole play you know and and the play opens with all art is quite useless this is a pretty bleak way of starting the play you know um and w- one quote that I that I got the other day, Albert Hubert once said, what people need and what people want may be very, very different. And this is very clear in Dorian's case as the sort of sin and vice that he commits with, you know, with the with the very obvious reference to homosexuality as well. And it just sort of weighs on him. And, you know, he eventually kills Basil, who's the guy who painted the beautiful painting at the, at the very start. Did Neil Bartlett, there were original, it was originally produced in yeah. a magazine and maybe he went back there for some... Yeah, he went back to the original 1890 transcript of the story, um, which was a brilliant edition of Nicholas Frankel for a Harvard University Press. 
That was just published last year. Yeah, so he had that available year. to him as well as the actual exactly. book. But he, he did tone it down, but it was still very, 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 you know, I thought in your face as well, the references to homosexuality, and especially in religion, when you when you have Catholicism and homosexuality in the same play, you know, it's it's going to cause some tension. He he reined it back, but he also he was controlled in how he in how he did it. Now, Conversations on a Homecoming is a completely different play, Rona. What did you make of it? Well, uh, Conversations on a Homecoming is, of course, part of the Druid Murphy trilogy. And the three of them, they tell the story of emigration and those who left and those who were left behind. Now, the first one is Famine, which obviously is set in the 19th century and tells the story of the Great Hunger. Whistle in the Dark, then, is uh, is back in the 1960s and it tells the story of a family in England uh, who couldn't leave Ireland or who had to leave Ireland and they didn't have a place in England. It's a lot darker then Conversations. Now, but Conversations is much gentler, but no less effective. Um, it tells the story of Michael, a failed actor who's come home from America after a 10-year absence. Now, he hadn't been in contact with the people from home for 10 years, and um, his counterpart is Tom. The whole play uh, is set in a bar, and it's basically over a drinking session. Now, he comes back to the pub to see his friends, um, who basically haven't done that much in 10 years. He's a failed actor and his counterpart, Tom, um, he really fills the Irish stereotype and I had a great laugh at him. He is uh, living at home with his mother in his 30s, uh, engaged to the same woman for nine years who's still waiting uh, to get married to him. And we find out that uh, he hasn't done much either. So, I mean, it, in it's over a space of nearly two hours on stage and you get all the themes. You get loss, you get regret, emigration, religion, hope, despair and the human condition. Did it work for you? It definitely worked for me, yeah. And I was quite surprised because I found out that it was one act, so I was a bit nervous about it. Um, I, I didn't, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to sit through it, but they were quite engaging, very, very engaging, in particular Eileen Walsh as Peggy. She was absolutely fantastic. Mm. She plays the part of uh, Tom's fiance. There's obvious themes in it as well, which were quite similar to... Um, uh, the picture of Dorian Gray. Now, I know they're very, very different plays, but one thing that I found was the worshipping of false gods. Now, in the picture of Dorian Gray, it's very, very obvious. I mean, Catholicism, especially in the play, was kind of forced more than it was in the book. And, uh, of course, Lord Henry Watton is, he he has this dangerous worldview that... Um, uh, that Dorian subscribes to and basically he wreaks havoc upon everyone and anyone that he comes in contact with. A different kind of fear in conversations. A very different kind of fear in conversations. Yeah, there's a character in it called JJ. Now, he's not actually in it, He, but his presence hovers above the whole play. Uh, you learn that JJ came to the town from England 10 years beforehand, 10 years previously when, uh, when Michael was living at home. And at the time he was this subversive guru. He was challenging them to aspire to better things and to rebel against the church. He was told, apparently we hear that he was told one time that he looked like John F. Kennedy and that's all he had going from, for him. And they followed anyone who, who read a book on American politics. But like John F. Kennedy, he seduced them with his optimism and then he broke their hearts. But uh, when JJ's influence slipped, they started being visited by the priest and the people the priest represented. Um, now, you have to remember as well that this was a very different Ireland when Michael had left. And I think that what what Murphy does in the play is he shows the promise that people had in the 1960s for Ireland and then he shows the disappointment afterwards that Ireland hadn't changed that much and the characters are kind of stuck in a state of limbo. OK, final word. Put your reviewers' hats on. I'm off tomorrow night. I can only go to one of them. Which one would you recommend, Max? I, I personally would recommend Dorian Gray. Um, because I think I was sort of more taken on a story, on a journey with Dorian. And Henry Watton is just there throughout the whole play, sort of like a, 
a narrative along with the with the painting, just sort of going in and eroding them and eroding them. So I would pick Dorian Gray myself. Okay, and Rona. Well, I absolutely love the picture of Dorian Gray myself, and I have to say, I really enjoyed the play. And if you're if you're going for uh, aesthetics, it was absolutely beautiful. I thought it was absolutely gorgeous. It was the first one I did see as well, but. I have to say, Conversations on a Homecoming really did speak to me and I really, really enjoyed it. So that's the one I would pick. Max Macken and Rona Tarrant, thank you both for your insights. Thank you. Thank you. Our thanks also to Maura Campbell at the Abbey and Sinead of Jerry Lundberg PR for looking after the team once again. The picture of Dorian Gray runs at the Abbey until November the 17th and the Druid Murphy trilogy finishes its run at the Gaiety Theatre tomorrow night and we wish them well for their Washington tour. How do you combine theatre, puppetry, arts and crafts and the Bible? The answer is the Jesse box and our reporter Claire McCormack is here to tell us more. Is there a link with the Jesse tree here? Uh, there is, but basically the idea behind it is to make Bible stories more interactive for children. So the idea was designed and developed by three church-going friends, Jerry Malone, Paul Barnes and Sebastian Kraszkiewicz. The original idea came from Paul Barnes. So this is him with his three children, Hannah, Stephen and Joe, opening the report. Yeah, what did David tell Saul? What did David tell Saul? That he could he could kill lions and bears and that whenever he needed help, God would help him. That's exactly right. He said there was no need to be afraid that any time that he was in a situation, he called on God's help and God helped him. What it really does... For, for the people that use it, the Bible stories really come alive. Because when you open the box, you can see that that it's empty. But when you're populating this with with a story, you can see the colors coming, coming in. And, and you see that it becomes like a theater. Because children don't want to just sit down and, and listen to, to something that doesn't make sense for them. But if they can see, if they can interact, it makes much more sense. So uh, it's, a, it's a tool that opens whole, a doorway for, for a catechesis being passed to children. The Jesse Box name comes from, uh, you know, this psalm, a shoot springs from a stock of Jesse. But also it's connected to, uh, to a Jesse tree. Jesse tree was used from Middle Ages onwards as a... Uh, as a tool to explain to the people a history of salvation. Nearly all of Israel was afraid of him, except for... David. Except for David, that's right. He was some guy, David, wasn't he? What was the, the, the difference between David and the rest of the people in Israel? What was the difference? Uh, he was very small. Well, he was small, yeah. he was. Boy. The scripture uh, is a living word. It's not just uh, old literature. Uh, that you read and it's someone begins in the Old Testament tries to read through it and say what's this you know and and it came from an experience of us trying to um, pass faith to our own children what do I say what do I mean by pass faith but to expose them to the scripture that after you start to read them a story maybe two minutes if you're lucky and that's it they're thinking about their Nintendo or their football game or what's on the telly but with this, you just give them a short piece of the story and then they create it. So as they are creating it, you're able to re retell the story and they take ownership of it and it comes alive because they see themselves in the characters. Well, what happened when he was looking after the sheep? He killed a lion. He killed a lion. 
It's not every little fella that can kill a lion, is it? And a bear. And a bear, exactly. Okay, so we nearly have these arms ready. The great thing about um, the Jesse box is that um, there's, there's that extra dimension. You know, there's the, the, the kids are touching, they're feeling, they're cutting, they're gluing, they're, um, they're using all their senses. So they just, uh, you know, whether they like it or not, they're paying attention, do you know what I mean? Uh, because they're involved, they're, they're fully involved. We've had a remarkable um, reaction to the whole thing. Um, we we relaunched it at the at the Eucharistic Congress, and it it, it went down so well. It was it, it was brilliant. We sold lots of them. We had lots of more people who wanted to buy them who would come from all over the world. Uh, uh, you know, at the Eucharistic Congress, yet I don't know maybe people from eighty different countries there. And there was a uh, yeah, huge interest uh, uh, from all over Europe and uh, and the and especially the United States and uh, and and Canada. Uh, we're just back from um, a, a trade fair in Dallas in, in, in from the Catholic Marketing Network over there, and they loved it. Paul Barnes there and Claire. Where can listeners find out more about the Jesse Box and where can they get it? Well, the Jesse box is exclusively sold online and that's where they can find out more at www.thejessiebox.com. But the good news is we've been given two to give away as prizes to a couple of lucky listeners. So all they have to do is listen to this clip and answer the question put by Paul. They go down, follow where the angel was and they find the stable. And what do they find in the stable? What have we got here in the stable, Hannah? And Eileen listeners should send their answers before next Friday, along with their name and the address of where they'd like us to send the prize. And just to remember, we'll only accept entries by post or by email. And those addresses are? The email address is godslot at rte.ie and our postal address is the godslot rte radio 1 Dublin 4. Okay, Claire, we'll give those addresses again at the end of the programme. But for the moment, thank you very much. Thanks, Eileen. And just to wish best of luck to our competition goers. It's a prize well worth having. To manipulate the fears in others, you must first master your own. Are you ready to begin? If you make yourself more than just a man, if you devote yourself to an ideal, and if they can't stop you, That's from a trailer advertising what's called the Ultimate Dark Knight Trilogy. And the third and final instalment of that trilogy, The Dark Knight Rises, played in cinemas during the summer, along with a new Spider-Man and The Avengers Assemble. Boys being boys, along to see those superhero blockbusters went producer Jerry McArdle and lecturer in religious studies and ethics at Galway Mayo Institute of Technology, our regular film reviewer Barry Macmillan. Well, yes, uh, we uh, both spent a considerable portion of the summer uh, at the pictures uh, and the the three films which really will characterise uh, the cinema going in summer 2012 uh, will have been Avengers Assemble, The Amazing Spider-Man and The Dark Knight Rises. Are these superheroes, are they becoming a replacement for 
either the prophets or God himself. I mean, we hear people have lost all faith with the Catholic Church. We have the thing of um, Muhammad being uh, caricatured in cartoons. Are these superheroes taking over? I I don't want to to push the the connection too far, too hard or too quickly. But uh, I think you, you, you touch on something that is actually... Uh, is actually real and a growing phenomenon uh, in in the time we're living in. For example, if we go back to the opening clip there, um, you know that that the voiceover that that, that that was there. You know, if you make yourself more than a man, if you devote yourself to an ideal, and if they can't stop you, then you become something else entirely. Legend, a story, legend. Now it's very clear in that, that there's a very deliberate, evocative, mythic element to these films, and particularly the Batman films. Uh, Avengers Assemble uh, even goes so far as to co-opt Thor, the Norse god, into its superhero team. So I think it's, it's, it's worth exploring that, because what we're finding is, is that in an era in which belief in God is, is on the wane, in which religion is sneered at in many ways. What we have in these figures, uh, in these superhuman figures, is something that is starting to resemble a kind of neoclassical pantheon of the gods. Uh, what we're starting to, to get is, if you like, our if you like, reincarnations after a fashion of the likes of Ares or Apollo or Poseidon or Hermes. And I think this is emerging rather than something which is, is fully in place. Perhaps not even entirely consciously that these films and their source texts in these characters are for for religiously dismissive and disillusioned people that these, in some functional way, uh, these characters and stories are beginning to move into that psychological space where religious myths previously inhabited. One of the characters in one of the revampings, if you like, of the characters that fascinates me is Batman. Because you and I are of an age where we can remember that very campy TV series mm-hmm. where they ran about the place and you had Biff, Sock, Pam and all that sort of thing and Robin constantly saying things like, holy ashtray, Batman, yes, and all that stuff. And it was just... Um, I mean, it was fun. It was just comedy. There was no great significance. Even the outfits they wore were ridiculous. That was all a bit of fun. But now we're being asked to take Batman very seriously. It's a very dark thing that's going on there. I think that's a very good comparison, is that these uh, the superhero uh, in, a, in, a, in a previous age or in previous ages was a kind of um, kids thing. Uh, in our era, and I, I, I think this is the crux of the point I'm making here, is in our era, these figures... Uh, are being invested with with significance, and again back to that voiceover, you know that that you become more, uh, you become something else entirely. You be, you become legend, and you know, and that taps us into you know, well, what are the roles of myths and legends in human history? Um, Karen Armstrong, the th- uh, theologian and philosopher, uh, writes very interestingly on this uh, about how a need for transcendence, for for having experiences and ideas that go beyond our everyday experience, uh, that these seem to have been characteristic of, of meaning-seeking creatures of the human from earliest times. And I, I just if I can quote something she says, which I think cuts to the nub of this. From the very beginning, we invented stories that enabled us to place our lives in a larger setting, that revealed an underlying pattern, that gave us a sense that Against all the depressing and chaotic evidence to the contrary, life had meaning and value. That, I think, gives us some key uh, insight or some way into understanding the role 
of these characters uh, in our time, in an increasingly irreligious age. Just elaborate on that for me. Um, I'm glad you quoted Karen Armstrong because she's one of my favourite writers. But just, just, just go into that a little more for me. Well, I, I suppose what I'm saying is, is that the, the larger context in which these films and these characters appear uh, in the West is a, a scientistic, materialist and often explicitly anti-religious age. Uh, In that context, awareness of true spiritual transcendence and the capacity to experience true spiritual transcendence are often criticised and undermined by very strongly influential elements in the culture. In that context, what we start to see is is what uh, what I'm terming the domestication of, um, of religious imagery and language and iconography. In fact, the comedian Eddie Izzard, in fact, offers, offers a very um, succinct expression of this, where he, he traces the diminution of the word awesome. And he says, well, the word awesome, which used to be invoked to describe the, the, the great uh, experiences of humanity, birth, death, uh, being faced with, with the, 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 the great wonders of the night sky uh, or the physical world, uh, that word in common parlance now has become so so has degenerated in, into oh well I mean that those those trainers are awesome or that hot dog yeah. oh wow the hot dog was awesome in other words to go to, to say I went to the top of the mountain and I met God uh, and it was an awesome experience to which someone would say oh really oh it's like a hot dog really mm. now what what intrigues me about this is is, is uh, that. That some sense of that idea uh, is adverted to even in secular circles. For example, the film critic Catherine Showard, who writes in the Guardian, she, uh, in one of her commentary pieces, refers to the ba- uh, to the new Batman film. She refers to the character as a crime-fighting Christ substitute. Now, you as a lecturer in theology and in particular Christology, and you mentioned Batman here as a kind of a Christ figure. Does that uh, f- flow into what you do in some way? That's an interesting question, Jerry. Uh, one of the things that always strikes me is from my experience lecturing and, and teaching Christology is that the great majority of theology or religious studies students are very comfortable with, with what's termed a high Christology. In other words, an emphasis on the divinity of Jesus Christ, but are, in, at least initially, somewhat ill at ease uh, with the notion of a low Christology, which the emphasis on the humanity of Jesus. Now, the, the sometimes overemphasis on divinity is understandable in a believer in that it's, it's both persuasive and reassuring to what they want and choose to believe. But it has always struck me that that uh, emphasis or overemphasis on the divinity of Jesus Christ uh, must be alienating in some way to those who are sceptical, uh, and, and that doubly so in a, in a religiously antagonistic time. And as I say, in that, uh, there's a very distinct throwback to the classical Greek and, and Roman divine pantheons. Do these films worry you in any way as a believer and as a man who lectures in the subject of theology? No, they, they don't worry me or concern me uh, in that sense. I, I, I think the things to be concerned about in the culture um, are the larger phenomena against which these play out, whatever their pretensions or whatever their aspirations. They are ultimately superhero movies and I think there's uh, something of the legacy of, of that particular genre um, hangs around them. Going back to Catherine Showard's description of Batman as a crime-fighting Christ substitute, uh, they are fundamentally, um, they are redemption narratives. And I would rather have a prevalence of redemption narratives playing out in some way in popular culture than a prevalence of narratives that are cynical or nihilistic. Barry Macmillan, 
And that's our programme for this week. Don't forget to enter our quiz and win a Jesse box. And for that, you'll need our email address, godslot at rte.ie, or our postal address, the Godslot, RTE Radio 1, Dublin 4. And as we said, we'll accept entries until next Friday. Your comments are always welcome by phone. The number is 01208 This Sunday, The Meaning of Life returns to its usual half-past ten slot on RTE1 and this week Gay Byrne will talk to Noel Gallagher about his faith and values and on Tuesday night at a quarter past 11 on Beyond Belief Mick Pilo discusses our blasphemy laws and before we go our congratulations to John Hume on being honoured with a papal knighthood we'll be back next Friday night at the same time with our first programme recorded in front of a live audience the abortion debate very timely with the news this week from Northern Ireland Goodie Shin Cause I gotta have faith. Mm-hmm.